Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I'm your host. A quick note before we begin this week, I'm running a little survey about the show so that I can make it better. As you all probably know, I make this show all by myself. So I don't really have any editors and I don't really get any feedback on what is working and what isn't working. So I'd love to know what you think about a few things and what directions you'd like to see the show go in. The survey will also help me find advertisers that are more relevant to your interests. So if you don't mind, head to flashforwardpod.com survey and fill it out. It should take less than five minutes and I really appreciate it. Okay, let's go to the future. This week, we're going to start in the year 2021. A series of volcanic eruptions in Alaska earlier today has much of the state and its Canadian neighbors wondering what could possibly be happening. The state is home to 130 volcanoes, and at our last count, 45 of them had shown some activity over the past two days. All right, this just coming into us, a volcano on Kuchino-Erabu Island in southern Japan erupted Friday morning. Pyroclastic flows have reached the coast. We're seeing live pictures coming in from southern Japan. Meteorological agency officials have issued the highest level warning. They're telling the island's 130 residents to evacuate. No damage has been reported so far. We interrupt this broadcast for a breaking news announcement. Reports are coming in from across the globe that the eruptions in Alaska this morning were just the tip of the iceberg. Volcanic activity has now been confirmed at over 200 volcanoes across the globe, and some of these eruptions have already destroyed several cities. Reports from the ground say the infamous Mount Vesuvius erupted just a few hours ago, and local reports suggest that the 600,000 people living below the volcano had no time to escape. Stay tuned as we gather more on this story. Here's something else that is really bubbling up out there today and is one of the world's most active volcanoes, which literally blew its top, you might say, in Hawaii over the weekend, spewing flumes. Look at this video. This is great stuff. Now, these are live images of the volcano in Kagoshima Prefecture. Once again, a volcano. Volcanic ash has caused the worst disruption in air travel since 9-11. A spectacular site in southern Iceland where a volcano is erupting near a glacier. Another volcano has erupted today, this time in Indonesia. Mount Merapi reportedly blew its top just 30 minutes ago, sending a pyroclastic flow through several local villages. The Indonesian government has ordered nearly 60,000 people to evacuate, but reports coming in suggest that the order may have come too late. Interrumpimos la transmisión para brindarles un boletín informativo sobre las erupciones volcánicas que tal parecen estar en sincronía en varias partes del planeta. Al menos 200 diferentes erupciones se han reportado al momento borrando del mapa ciudades completas. Cables locales confirman que el abominable monte Vesubio hizo erupción aproximadamente dos horas atrás. Algunas autoridades locales reportan que los 600.000 residentes en las faldas del volcán no corrieron suerte al tratar de escapar. Volvemos con más información en una hora. Scientists at the United States Geological Survey called an emergency press conference today to discuss the ongoing worldwide volcanic activity. As of today's latest count, 438 volcanoes have erupted since Friday, but the scientists warned that the ash clouds and destruction may have cut off communication from remote areas and the number may be higher. 
the researchers said they still have no clues as to why these volcanoes are all erupting at once. Humanitarians across the globe are already warning of incredible destruction and loss of life. We take you now to the president. We're rolling? Oh, we're rolling. Hello, my fellow Americans. I'm speaking tonight not from the White House where I would normally be, but from an emergency bunker. I'm sure I don't need to explain why. I apologize for the low quality of this broadcast, but I want you to know that our scientists and officials are working around the clock to provide relief to the communities impacted by this incredible disaster. I must also ask that you do not panic, that you do not let fear and confusion overcome you, that you do not shun your neighbors, your friends, our fellow Americans. Whatever is happening right now knows no boundaries. It knows no good neighborhoods and bad neighborhoods. It cannot tell if you are rich or poor, black or white. And I ask that while you struggle to overcome this disaster, you borrow that same mentality. I cannot explain why this is happening or how long it will continue. But I can tell you this. You are not alone. George Washington, the great founder of our nation, once said, Let it be told to the future world that in the depth of winter, when nothing but hope and virtue could survive, that the city and country alarmed at one common danger came forth to meet it. And Barack Obama, 44th President of the United States, called upon those words in 2009. America, in the face of our common dangers, in this winter of our hardship, let us remember these timeless words. With hope and virtue, let us brave once more the icy currents and endure what storms may come. Let it be said by our children's children that when we were tested, we refused to let this journey end, that we did not turn back nor did we falter. And with eyes fixed on the horizon and God's grace upon us, we carried forth that great gift of freedom and delivered it safely to future generations. Thank, Thank you. God, God bless you. you and God bless the United States of America. How was that? Okay, so today's future is one in which every single active volcano on Earth erupts at the same time. We haven't done an apocalypse scenario this season, so here we go. But before we get to how bad this would be, let's back up a little bit and talk about volcanoes and what makes something an active volcano. Okay, so yeah, so the, the scientific definition of a, an active volcano is um, one that's erupted in the last 10,000 years. That's Jessica Ball, and she's a volcanologist at the U.S. Geological Survey. 10,000 years is sort of a, a, an arbitrary marker. It's, it's the, the beginning of the Holocene, um, which is one of the, the you know, geologic time periods that we define things by. Um, and there are about 1,500 volcanoes around the world that have erupted in the last 10,000 years. So 1,500 volcanoes all going off at the same time. And also, there might be more than 1,500. That's just all we know about. Um, it does count some undersea volcanoes, but the, the caveat there is that we don't know about a lot of them. And we, we know that there are more out there that are probably active, but they just haven't erupted yet. And they might even erupt without us knowing about them. 
Now, not all volcanoes or eruptions are the same. Jessica says there are actually a couple of different types of eruptions. It depends on the type of magma. So if you have, um, you know, stickier magma involved in the eruption, it's more likely to be explosive. Whereas if you have magma that's not quite as sticky, um, it might flow instead. Um, it depends on how much gas is involved. Um, it depends on, you know, any number of factors. So a lot of you can sort of group them into categories of like explosive or effusive. So some volcanoes flow slowly. If you've ever been to the Hawaiian Islands, some of those are the slow seeping kind. But others blow fast in more of the classic kaboom style eruption that you usually think of with volcanoes. The term that we use is, is ballistics, but you could also use the, the, um, the term lava bombs. It's, it's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> lava bombs. Very cool. Except if you get hit by one, in which case you probably die. So some volcanoes blow, some of them seep, some of them can do both. But if they all went off at the same time, what would happen? Oh, that, that would be a very bad day. <laughs> um, it would be, I, I can imagine it would be catastrophic in, in any number of ways. Okay, so let's get more specific. First, you have just the destruction right near the volcanoes, which is no small thing. You know, the people near the volcanoes, first of all, there will be a lot of dead people very close to them. Um, because if, if, say, you had a bunch of explosive eruptions, you have things like pyroclastic flows, which are really fast clouds of, of rock and ash and gas that are very hot. Um, you can't outrun those. You can't outdrive those. You know, you might get away from them in a jet or something. So a pyroclastic flow is like this giant wall of hot gas and rock that comes out of a volcano. And these flows can move as fast as 450 miles an hour and reach temperatures as hot as 1,830 degrees Fahrenheit. So if that is coming for you, you are pretty much done. You're dead. There's nothing you can do. And pyroclastic flows, depending on the volcano, can travel for over 100 miles. So if you are even remotely close to one of the volcanoes that really goes off, you are probably dead. And that's a lot of people. About 3 million people live near Mount Vesuvius. 130 million people live on the island of Java, which is also home to 45 volcanoes. In Mexico, Popocatepe, named after the Aztec word for smoking mountain, rises out of the ground near both Mexico City and Puebla. Together, that's over 10 million people. And those are just a couple of volcanoes. So if all of the volcanoes go off, all at once, we are looking at millions and millions of people dead. Just like that. It would suck. <laughs> but it doesn't end there. This is just the beginning. When a volcano erupts, it often sends ash into the air. And volcanic ash is different from ash from, like, a forest fire. Volcanic ash is actually tiny pieces of pulverized rock. And rock, as you probably know, is heavy. Which means that volcanic ash, when it falls back down out of the sky, is also really heavy. Ash from an eruption is pulverized rock, so it's basically like somebody has just dumped a sandbox on you. Ash can collapse buildings because it's so heavy. Um, so if it piles up on the roof or if, it, you know, if there's enough of it, it'll just flatten things. Not only does volcanic ash collapse buildings, it also makes flying totally impossible. So if you thought you would just escape on an airplane, no, 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 no. 
It's not just because you can't see through it. These tiny rock particles actually shut down plane engines. If you get even a little bit of that into a plane engine, what happens, because it's, it's basically glass, is that it will melt and then re-solidify on your engine parts. And, and that, that is obviously an extremely bad thing. <laughs> This actually happened to a plane in Alaska in 1989. The flight was going from Amsterdam to Tokyo, and it was making a stop in Anchorage. On the way, it flew through a cloud of volcanic ash from Mount Rideau. Inside the engines, the ash actually turned into a glass coating, which made the plane's temperature sensors fail and caused all four engines to shut down. Eventually, the pilots were able to regain control of the plane, turn the engines back on, and land. But all of the engines had to be replaced before the plane could fly again. And it's not just plane engines that this can happen to. Any engine can be totally destroyed by volcanic ash. You know, you're basically down to like a bicycle or a mule or something. (laughs) And unlike ash from a forest fire, which washes away eventually and dissolves, volcanic ash doesn't because it's pretty much sand. It sticks around and it's really hard to get rid of. Now, not only does the ash gum up these engines, it's also really bad for us to breathe. Because breathing in tiny rock particles is really bad for your lungs. So you can get silicosis out of it. Um, It's just sort of, you get glass into your lungs and your lungs respond um, by doing various different things to it. Like, you know, they might send, send your immune system after them or or they might scar, or they might, you know, all sorts of things. Um, you might get um, pneumonia, so your lungs might fluid, fill with fluid. It's, it's very nasty stuff if you start breathing it in. So, to recap, millions of people dead immediately. Cities that aren't destroyed by the immediate pyroclastic and mud flows will then face fallout from the ash that can collapse their buildings. You can't go outside without a gas mask because breathing in the ash will cut up your lungs. And you can't go anywhere using a vehicle with an engine because the ash in the air will gum it up. Oh, also, you've probably lost a lot of your communication channels, too. Ash can ruin satellite dishes and block radio waves. Okay, that's all bad, but it gets worse. Because these volcanoes going off would not only destroy anybody within radius and then potentially cripple folks for thousands of miles, it could also change the climate on Earth. Yeah, that's that's sort of what people sometimes call a doomsday scenario. That would be extremely bad. (laughs) Now, we've seen something like this before. In 1815, a volcano in Indonesia called Mount Tambora erupted. Now, the Mount Tambora eruption is one of the most powerful volcanic eruptions in recorded history. It was gigantic. Scientists have this way of classifying volcanoes, and Mount Tambora is a VEI-7. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of the ranking system, but for comparison, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, which you've probably heard about, was a VEI-5. And the scale is logarithmic, which means that Mount Tambora was 100 times more powerful. So the eruption on Mount Tambora began on April 5th, 1815. There was this huge boom sound that was heard from hundreds of miles away. Then on April 10th, people in Sumatra reported hearing what they thought was the sound of firing guns. They actually thought that their neighbors were being attacked with cannons. It was actually Mount Tambora. And Sumatra is 1,600 miles away from Mount Tambora, and they could hear the eruption. Accounts from the Times say things like, the whole mountain was turned into liquid fire. For several days, it rained pumice stones and then ash. Today, researchers estimate that 9.8 cubic miles of pyroclastic rock was ejected from Mount Tambora, which weighed 10,000 tons. But Tambora isn't just impressive because the eruption was so huge. It's also notable because of the impact that it had, not just locally, but globally. 
1815 eruption in Tambora can actually be seen in global climate records. It puts so much, you know, ash and gas into the atmosphere that it actually lowered global temperatures by almost an entire degree Celsius. This dip in temperatures meant that crops actually failed, and there were food shortages all across the northern hemisphere. In North America, there was this constant reddish, dry fog that never seemed to go away. That winter was incredibly harsh, and an early frost killed most crops in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Vermont, and upstate New York. One farm in New York actually recorded snow on June 7th and 8th, 1816. In Europe, it was largely the same. Heavy rain and cool temperatures ruined crops like wheat and oats and potatoes. There was looting and riots in the UK and France. In Switzerland, the government actually declared a national emergency. And Ireland suffered a typhus epidemic. Crops failed in China, too, and farmers who were starving and desperate for cash planted poppies, which led to a boom in the global opium trade. And here's one last fun fact about the impact of the Mount Tambora eruption. That summer, the summer of 1816, is when Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. Shelley was supposed to be on a summer vacation in Switzerland, but it was cold and rainy, like we just mentioned. And she and her companions spent a lot of time inside. And to pass the time, they entertained themselves with a ghost story writing contest. And thus, Frankenstein was born. So you can thank a volcanic eruption for Frankenstein, kind of. And also for a whole lot of death and suffering. And that was just one volcano. If one huge eruption can cause that kind of devastation, think about what 1,500 could do. So how do you survive something like this? When we come back, we're going to hear from two people who might actually make it through this apocalypse and how they plan to do it. But first, a quick break. Okay, so this week we're taking on the apocalypse. All 1,500 active volcanoes on Earth have erupted at once. This is not good. Very not good. Thankfully, it's never going to happen. Or if it does, we'll have even bigger problems anyway. Oh, no. No, no, no. (laughs) Eruption triggers are so complicated um, sometimes. Like, they may even be individual to a particular volcano that there's—I can't imagine that there's one thing that could happen to the Earth that would set off a lot of volcanoes all at once, except maybe, you know, like a catastrophic asteroid strike, in which case we'd have other problems. (laughs) But what if this did happen? Who would survive? Probably the next two people we're going to talk to, Megan Hine and Pat Henry. Megan and Pat are both sort of survival experts, but they go about it in really different ways. Megan is an adventurer and wilderness expedition leader. She takes people out into the middle of nowhere and trains them how to survive. People like Bear Grylls, the man of the Discovery Channel show Man vs. Wild. Bear has called Megan the most incredible bushcraft, climbing, and mountain guide you will ever meet. The thing with like wilderness survival um, and like a true survival situation, you know, where you've actually you've been in a plane crash, you know, natural disasters like these volcanoes erupting, uh, you just don't know how you're going to react until you're in that situation. And, you know, you don't know sort of how strong psychologically you are uh, until you're confronted with that situation. Pat is a little bit different. Pat is a prepper, someone who is actively preparing today for a disaster that might come tomorrow. If I had to say I had one thing I was kind of worried about, more than any other thing, it would probably be an economic collapse. Um, Because, you know, when everyone is, uh, you know, impacted by the world economy, there's nowhere to turn. If the system crashes, uh, it's going to be horrific. Pat is the founder and editor of a website called The Prepper Journal, which has pretty much everything you would need to know about prepping should you be worried about, say, 
all the volcanoes going off at once. Now, the first step in surviving this kind of volcano explosion is just to be lucky. If all the world's volcanoes go off, um, I think it's like any uh, survival situation that you end up in. Initially, it's luck as to who survives. Uh, because if you're unlucky and you're within the radius of a volcano going off and the gases hit you or, you know, the, the flow hits you um, and, and takes you out, it's then kind of, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just bad luck. So where is the luckiest place to be? The best place to be, I would say, would be somewhere really far in the interior of a continent that, that had a, a decent water supply of some kind. <laughs> but Weirdly, in the short term, the best place to be might actually be on a cruise ship in the middle of the ocean. They have food, they have medical supplies, they have clean water, and they're not near any volcanoes, probably. Of course, eventually, you will have to come back to land. But at least you would survive the initial devastation. And beyond luck, both Megan and Pat said pretty similar things about how you might want to prepare and react to something this terrible. Get yourself a stash of food, clean water, and supplies. What we look at when when we're talking about survival um, is a hierarchy called uh, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, uh, which was initially uh, Maslow set this up um, for the workplace for helping uh, employers um, to be able to get the best out of their their employees. But it's actually, it's brilliant to sort of relate to survival scenarios as well. You know, the very first thing, if you're in a survival scenario, is that you meet the physiological needs and things like you know, oxygen, you know, things that we can't live out without oxygen, food, water, shelter, sleep. Because everyone needs food, everyone needs water. Uh, everyone needs shelter, and then you start getting into things like, you know, hygiene and sanitation, medical care, and security. Pat is totally ready for this, by the way. He has almost two years of food and supplies stored up in his house. I do. I do. For, for my family, I probably have a good 18 months' worth of food stored away. Um, As a person who lives in a tiny apartment, where do you put that? <laughs> well, I, I have a house, so you know I've got a I got a pantry, and then there's there's food you know stashed under the bed, freeze dried food under the bed. But you know you start looking at fifty pound bags of rice, um, and then you, you know ten pound bags of beans, and then five gallon jugs of um, you know buckets of hard red winter wheat. You know you can you can really start amassing a lot of a lot of calories in a relatively short uh, you know um, footprint. Once you've got your basic needs met, then you start to deal with the psychological fallout. And with volcanoes, there are some special things to worry about. It's going to be dark. If the sky's much darker as well, because of all the ash um, up in and the gases up in the, the atmosphere um, and in the sky above us, um, things like lack of sunlight as well. I mean, things like that. If you're not getting the vitamin D uh, that your body needs to survive, um, it can start inhibiting calcium absorption, uh, which is... Uh, most adults would probably survive that, but children who are more vulnerable um, could have a real problem if they're not getting the vitamin D they, they need. Um, but something else that sunlight triggers is the serotonin uh, cycle, um, which happens which happens daily. Uh, and if that cycle gets out of whack because your body's not uh, getting sunlight it requires, um, it can become quite irregular. Um, and this can actually cause things like depression and anxiety. Now, Megan says that there are two kinds of people in these survival situations, people who can take it and people who can't. What I find so fascinating with the psychology of survival is that is why do some people uh, give up 
in a survival situation, why will they give up? And they, they have no will to, to survive. They've got no will to fight. Whereas some people will do whatever it takes. And it's just so interesting, the, the difference in psychology between those two camps of people. But even if you are a survivor, then you have to figure out how to deal with the other people who have also managed to survive. So Megan says that if she did have a good setup, if she did have food and water, she would keep it a secret. I wouldn't be telling anybody if uh, if I'd uh, got set myself up with sustainable living that I could, you know, potentially live long term off. I definitely wouldn't be telling anybody about it. Now, remember that Pat does have food, water and supplies stored up and he actually does keep it a secret. You see, Pat is not Pat's real name. It is not my real name. He uses a pseudonym for all of his online prepper discussions, partially because he doesn't want potential employers to find his online stuff and think he's maybe a little out there, but mostly because if things do get bad, he doesn't want anyone to know that he's got food and water saved up. You certainly don't want all your friends and neighbors to know these things that I talk about, and I'm, I'm pretty honest about everything that I, I've personally done and, and planned for myself on my site. Um, You know, I didn't want to be that guy who was faced with, you know, 20 of your friends coming over or something, you know, really bad happens and saying, hey, we know you've got food. Let us in. In fact, in Prepper Lingo, there's actually a name for this. You know, we call it the gray man concept or the gray man theory, where you want to look just like everyone else. You don't want them to know that, um, you know, you're armed or you have food or, you know, that, you know, you have a nice place to stay. You want to stay, you know, just kind of under the radar. You don't want to stand out. You want to blend in. Even Pat's friends don't know that he's a prepper. I, I really play it close to the vest. Um, If people ask me if I have food stored up, I I probably wouldn't share that. But if all the volcanoes go off, Pat and his family will probably be okay. Megan also will totally be able to take care of herself. You and me, on the other hand, eh, probably not so much. We will probably need some help and to find other humans to work with to survive. And Megan said something that I thought was really interesting about this. When all these volcanoes go off and you find yourself trying to band together with a useful group of other humans, you probably want, you know, a doctor, a farmer who can help you grow crops, someone who's good at hunting, that kind of stuff. And if a Hollywood actor wanted to join you, you'd probably say no. Because, I mean, how useful is an actor going to be? They've never really had to survive anything in their lives. But Megan actually works with actors a lot, taking them out into the wilderness so that they can prepare for their roles on screen as rugged adventurers. And she says that there is something about actors that actually makes them really good survivors. Because I think, like, from the survival side of things, a lot of it is very mental. Um, and it's amazing how, you know, it's like, like actors are just so focused um, that, you know, they fought for survival, like maybe in a different way to, you know, in the wilderness, but it's still fighting for survival in like what's quite a cutthroat industry. So like their sort of mental attitude towards it is is usually like spot on. So if Brad Pitt asks to join your roving band of post-volcanic apocalypse humans, you should say yes. That's all for this apocalyptic future. If you want more on volcanoes, survival tips, prepping, and more, head to flashforwardpod.com, where, as usual, we will post links to more information. And while you're there, you can fill out the survey I mentioned, flashforwardpod.com survey. Please, please, please fill it out. It will be a huge help to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 
Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Evelyn, and is part of the Boing Boing podcast family. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Broke for free. The voices for this week's feature scene were provided by Suzanne Fisher, Ari Baranovsky, Eddie Gima, Guillermo Herrera, Wendy Hari, John Olier, Caroline Sinders, and Kevin Wojtasek. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. If you want to suggest a future that we should take on, you can send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, Tumblr, or email at info at flashforwardpod.com. We're also on Instagram now if you want to follow us there. I love hearing your ideas, so keep them coming. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email us at info at flashforwardpod.com. If you're right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways that you can do that, too. We have a Patreon page where you can donate. We also have an Acast Plus membership that you can join. Or you can just donate once. Information on all of those things is at flashforwardpod.com support. If none of that is in the cards for you, you can head to iTunes and leave us a nice review. Or just tell your friends about us. That really does help. That's all for this future. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one.